so hopefully we can all hear okay this morning. I forgot to do something. Becca, you ready for this? Matthew 5, 43 to 48. I always give her the scriptures beforehand so that you can see them up and I forgot. Second uh, Timothy 3, 16, 17. Matthew 7, 1 to 5. And John 8, 7 to 11. So you can open to Matthew 5, 43 to 48 as we begin. And, uh, and I, hope, I hope you do, if you have your Bible, make sure that you are opening and reading along because it's, uh, it's always better to actually have it right in front of you than, than just looking at the screen, though it's there for those who maybe have forgotten your Bible or, or maybe you have a hard time flipping between passages. So it is there and it's, it's meant for you, but it's not ever meant to take away from the Bible that you uh, have in your hands. So uh, this question this morning, this is a great, great question. Because, well, I've say, I probably say this every week. It's very practical for all of us. But uh, this is practical because we will all have to deal with this on an ongoing basis. This is something that we don't just kind of come to a theological conclusion on and then we're good and we're set. Every time a relationship comes into our lives, life gets messy in one way or another. And we have to then go back to Scripture to figure out how to answer this question. Basically, the heart of it is this. When somebody in your life is living completely contrary to what we know Scripture teaches, how are we supposed to respond? Are we, how, how do we love and how do we hold truth uh, high at the same time? And basically, I'm going to argue for the next 15 minutes that we're supposed to do both those things. But that's what the Bible teaches us. And I think sometimes we get stuck in one or the other where we're, we're so concerned that we need to defend the Word of God, that we hold truth so high that we get callous and we lose care and concern for others. And again, I'm going to argue that that's not a biblical way to do it. However, on the flip side is if we only love so much so that we ignore or, or maybe even give in and we no longer hold high the standards that are presented in Scripture, well, that's, we're going to argue that as well, that that's not right either. So how do we find that balance? Uh, now, there's a couple of things that we're going to deal with in this. Is, is first of all, we're going to deal with where is their relationship with the Lord? Because that's huge. Are they a Christian? Do they claim to follow Jesus or are they not? That's huge in how we deal with this. Also, is going to be the depth of your relationship with that person. Is you're going to treat people differently because we treat people differently. Those that are in our lives more that we interact with all the time, we treat them differently than the stranger that we meet on the street. That's just a reality of relationship. And I think the reality of, of finding that balance of love, grace, and truth also is intended in there. If you have a good, solid, meaningful relationship with somebody, you probably have a little bit more leeway to speak truth into their life than to walk up to a stranger and just tell them how to live. It just usually doesn't work very good. So that's kind of what we're going to address this morning, and I've already given away everything, so I guess I could just go sit down. But let's read uh, from Scripture what it says, because I don't have anything smart to say, but this book has lots to say. So Jesus writes this for us in Matthew 5, starting in verse 43. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun, sorry, he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. 
And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now that last verse, you feel free to ask a question about that verse later because we don't have time to deal with that verse, but that's a very, very often misunderstood one. For, for our purposes this morning, We want to look at these first couple of verses. Jesus says, you've heard that it says you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Anybody remember in the Old Testament where that's written? It's not, right? The issue is you have these religious people that are trying to teach Scripture. And and again, the Pharisees get a bad rap. They are trying to teach what they believe to be correct. They've just misunderstood a, a great deal of it. And so they're looking at this and going, okay, hang on. Like, you don't have to love those who hate you. That doesn't make any sense. We're, we're not equipped to do that. Can't possibly do that. So, so love your neighbor. That's all through the Old Testament, but, but it's okay. You can hate your neighbor. You can hate your enemy. And Jesus says, actually, not only are you to love your enemies, you're to pray for those who persecute you. So those who oppose you, those who insult you, those who ridicule you, you're called to do two things to them. First, to love them. That's not very easy. It's much easier to talk very poorly about people that talk poorly about us. It's much easier when something happens to you at work or, or maybe downtown, an interaction with somebody, you come home and you vent to your family, you go, man, these people are crazy. Like, this person said this, this person did this. really easy to do that. It's not so easy to love. Then Jesus says to pray for those who persecute you. Notice he doesn't say pray for yourself as people persecute you? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, as they persecute you, pray that, you know, you can... No, he says, pray for them. Pray for them that they might know who God is. So there's a question that comes out of this, right? Then, so, who is my neighbor? I think you can imagine where we're going. Luke chapter 10, Jesus has somebody come up to him. A Pharisee comes up to him with this very idea. He says, you know, like he's trying to justify himself. God, who is my neighbor? Like, really? Right? Like, even Peter kind of asks the question at one point. He says, he says, how many times do I have to forgive the person who wrongs me? Right? And then he's like trying to self-justify, right? Uh, maybe up to seven. Seven pretty, seems pretty reasonable. Right? And Jesus responds, Peter, you don't even get it. You don't even get it. The same way in in Luke 10, this person says, who is my neighbor? And and there's a little comma, seeking to justify himself, right? So he already has his answer in his mind. But Jesus clarifies, and Jesus gives us the story, which we don't have time to get into, but the story uh, of the Good Samaritan, right? The parable of the Good Samaritan. And what do we learn in that? Who is your neighbor? Anyone. Everyone. Right? Not those that you just like, not the ones that are just across the street from you, but the ones who ridicule you, the ones who hate you, the ones that Jesus is here to love and to pray for. Those people are your neighbor. All of them. And remember, if you, if you read the parable of the sower, the, the crazy part of it all is that the person who helps the other person in, in culture should not. They should go, I will have nothing to do with that person. So put yourself in those shoes. What sometimes divides us where we go, I will not be involved in that kind of a person's life. 
They live this way. They, they do this. They say this. I, have, I will have nothing to do with them. And Jesus actually says, not only are you to love them, but you are to care for them and help them in their moment of need. So Jesus is saying your neighbor is anybody. Now remember last week we looked at this idea of the law and we looked at this, you are to love God and then you are to love your neighbor as yourself. We're given the Holy Spirit so that we can do that. Because on my own, I can't love my enemies. Pretty good at hating them. Right? I think we all are. But when we go and we pray and we ask the Holy Spirit to clean that heart of sin in us, to to push that stuff away so that we don't think of them that way, and we say, God, would you give me a heart to see them the way that you see them? No matter who it is on this earth, no matter how wicked or vile we may seem to think they are, God looks at that person as a man or a woman that he has created in his image and he loves. Now, the way they're living, maybe it hurts God a great deal. We'll talk about that, but that doesn't mean that God stops loving or that God stops caring. And so we are to do the same, love God and then to love people. So the first principle here, are we supposed to love everyone? Absolutely. Jesus says it very plainly, very clearly. But what about holding truth high? How do we do that? Well, uh, a few months ago, and so we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but a few months ago we read through 1 Corinthians 5. And in that passage, there's this man who's having an affair with his mother-in-law, living in the church, and the church is, is celebrating it and going, look how gracious we are. Look how kind and forgiving we are that that we can overlook sin and and we can just all worship together. And Paul comes on the scene and he freaks out. And he goes, what you are doing is wrong on so many levels. And he says, you need to kick that person out of the church so that they would see their need for repentance. So Paul's pretty big on truth. Paul continues, and he actually says that how that man is living is actually affecting everyone else in the church. He says in verse 6, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? Meaning that you overlooking that sin is actually starting to make you complacent towards sin, and you are becoming very okay with living however you want. And so we have what Jesus says in Matthew 5. We have what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, and we go, these things don't mix. They don't meet. But again, I think all we're doing there is we're ignoring the context of what the, or of where we are at in the text when these things happen. In Matthew 5, Jesus is sharing the gospel and he's explaining how to treat people who are unsaved. How we as the church should interact with those who do not know Jesus. Simple reality is this. Someone who does not believe that the Bible has any authority can't be told by us that how you're living is wrong. They don't even think it's the Bible. God doesn't. I have any say in that. I can live however I want. And so if we try and hold them to a standard that they haven't agreed to, we're never going to get anywhere. Never. Now again, that doesn't mean we condone things. In, math, or in 1 Corinthians 5, what Paul's dealing with is someone who professes to be a believer, who professes to follow after Jesus and then is living a life totally contrary to what Jesus says to do because Jesus forbid adultery very plain very simple, very clearly. And so this is that dance that we end up having for the rest of our lives is figuring out how do we love and how do we hold truth high? How do we, when is it 
proper to discipline? When is it proper to rebuke and to correct? And when is it not? Well, we looked at the verses last time, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, right? Which says that all Scripture, all of it is breathed out by God. It comes from His very mouth. And it's useful for correcting, for reproof, for training, for helping people understand the way that they ought to live. Verse 17 says this, this is the reason why, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. Competent and equipped for every good work. Is Scripture is meant to give to us so that we would know how to live, not for us to ignore it because we say, uh, Jesus has forgiven my sin, I can do whatever I want. Paul in Romans 6, should we just sin more so that grace can increase, right? So that grace is lifted up high. Doesn't that honor God more? And Paul says, by no means should we do that. Let's flip the page, if you're still in Matthew 5, just to Matthew 7. Because here's a, here's a passage of Scripture that really will help us in this too, in our understanding of how to start to deal with these relationships. Again, I'm going to argue real quick that this is a very, very poorly understood text. So we're going to clarify a few things. Matthew 7, starting in verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounced, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So often people use this passage to say, well, see, the Bible says don't judge. You can't judge, so don't judge me. You don't know. Is that really what it's saying? When we read beyond verses 1 and 2 and we hit, you know, 4, 5? Well, commentator Michael J. Wilkins helps us understand. He writes this, Judge not forbids announcing another person's guilt before God. However, Jesus does not forbid all evaluation or even judgment of others, for ultimately the one who feels grieved and humbled over his own sin can help remove the speck from others. What Jesus does rule out is pride that views oneself as better than others. What Jesus is saying is you have no right to go up to somebody and condemn them. Judgment lies for God and God alone, ultimate judgment. He knows the hearts of everyone. We don't. So we can't pronounce them going, you could say it this way, you can't pronounce it saying, well, the way that you're living, clearly you're going to hell. That's not our right to say. However, Jesus does say, look at this. First, take the log out of your own eye, right? What he's saying is recognize that your heart is just as broken as their heart. And deal with what needs to be dealt with in your own heart. Repent of what needs to be repented of. Ask forgiveness. Move forward. And when you have done that, notice what it says, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He's not saying don't do it. He's saying don't go up to somebody and, and show them the error of their ways when they need to be confronted on something. He says make sure you don't do it in a condescending, judgmental way because you stand the same that they do. Your heart is just as broken as theirs. And when we come to God in humility and we recognize our struggles and our hurts and we repent of those things, then when we approach somebody else, it's not with any kind of sense of, man, you are awful. You need to fix your heart. You go to them in the sense of, I know how you feel because my heart's the same way. 
But when we repent and when we move forward and when we find forgiveness, when we reconcile that relationship with Jesus, that is a beautiful thing and that's what God wants. So are we to judge others? Well, no, but yes. Clear as mud, I hope. Now, when we're talking, sorry, here, we're talking primarily about our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. What about those who are not? Well, even within that, there's a couple of distinctions to be made. In John 8, we read a story, uh, it's familiar to many of you, I'm sure. A woman is brought to Jesus who has been caught in adultery. Now, notice it says caught. Right? She's not, like, it's not like an accusation against her that's unproven, like she was caught. She's guilty. It's just clear. And so these teachers of the law, they go up to Jesus and they say, you know, the law of Moses permits us to stone her. Like, she should die for this. So what should we do? Right? And then you have this bizarre scene, kind of. Jesus leans down, writes on the sand. We have no idea what he's doing. I think a lot of times Jesus teaches in very unique ways. And Jesus writes in the sand, and, and what does he say? Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. Let him who is without sin among you, right? So Jesus is saying, you have no right to condemn her to death. That right ultimately lies with God and God alone. And so it says, the text is one by one, they give up and they leave until no one is left. Jesus then stops writing the sand, looks up and he says, woman, where are they? Has has no one condemned you? She says, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Again, this passage is so misused so often. Jesus doesn't condone the sin. He doesn't say, it's okay, don't worry about it. He says, I don't condemn you to an eternity in hell. What I call you to is to a life of repentance. Go and sin no more. He's showing her there's a better way than how you are living and how you are living is causing pain and hurt and all these problems in your life. And if you repent and if you put your trust in Jesus and if you follow after him, you will find purpose and meaning. Now again, when we think about it in this context, is we're, we're dealing with a culture of people, they knew the law. She knew she was guilty. She wasn't trying to defend herself. She wasn't trying to say, well, well, you interpret that differently than I do. She knew she was caught in adultery. She knew she was in the wrong. She said nothing to defend herself. What I'm noticing more and more, and I'm sure you are as well, is that less and less people have any concept as to what the Bible teaches and what is true. Truth has become this very relative thing that whatever you want to believe, as long as you believe it sincerely, then, then you're good. That's kind of the, the mantra of our world. Well, the Bible speaks very differently to that. So then how do we come alongside somebody and say to her, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more when they don't even know what sin is? What do you mean sin? I can... I can like, you don't have the right to tell me what's right and wrong. And, and let me say it this way, is no, you don't. But you know who does? God. And what has God done? Well, he's written it down for us. So when we come alongside a brother and a sister in humility, right? Remember what we, the log and the speck thing, is when we come alongside someone and we say, look, you, you say you want to follow after Jesus, but you're living this way. And this is wrong. We're called then to go and to help restore them, not because we're going, oh, I'm good. Now I need to help you get good. It's because we care deeply for one another. And when we see someone who is hurting, we want to help. 
When we see someone who is in pain, we want to give the answer. And it's not me saying, I have the answers. It's saying, I know where the answers are. God wrote these things. He said them, not me. I'm just a vessel, right? We're all just vessels sharing that with one another. You think of it in the context of just very simple things when you're a parent and your kid reaches up to touch the stove and you say no and you smack the hand away if you need to because you know what you're doing is protecting them from great harm. Sometimes you're the child and you go, you have no right to tell me I shouldn't do that. I'm just going to live however I want and let the consequences be. But if you love someone, you don't just let them do whatever they want, however they want. It's just not the way it is. We put rules in place. We put, as a parent, you put guidelines in place, not so that your kids don't have any fun, but so that your kids are safe, so that you know that they're protected. Because the simple reality is the world out there is a very ugly place and a lot of bad things can happen. And so we are called to care for one another. So back to this question of, well, how do we, how do we then love and yet show grace, especially to an unbeliever when they don't understand what Scripture says? Well, let me read to you something that Tim Keller wrote. I've quoted this before, but this is just a wonderful quote. He says, Love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but it keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked both by radical truthfulness about who we are and yet also radical unconditional commitment to us. The merciful commitment strengthens us to see the truth about ourselves and repent. The conviction and repentance moves us to cling to and rest in God's mercy and his grace. Can we do both? Can we love someone and yet hold truth high? Absolutely. And I wish there was just a really easy cookie-cutter way of how to do this with everyone, but every relationship is different. Every person that you interact with is different and understands and knows different things. When we come to a brother or sister in Christ that is claiming to be in submission to Christ but living against Scripture, we're supposed to go to them and call them to live back the way they have said and claimed. In Matthew 18, Jesus says, If he listens to you, then you have gained your brother." That relationship is restored. He clarifies further. He says, if he doesn't listen to you, take one or two other people along with you, not to bully them or gang up on them, but for them to see the importance of what's happening in their life. Again, if you see someone walking in front of a car, even if you don't know or care for them, you're going to yell out to them. If you're close, you're going to run and you're going to pull them out of the way. Because we know life is sacred. It's valuable because God's created them. How much more is it if it's someone that we love and if they're trapped and we can't help them, are we going to call others to come and help us to help them? Of course. Of course we are. Not because we think we're something and they're nothing, but because we think they're loved, created in the image of God. They are valuable. Jesus then says if, if they still don't listen, Well, then he says the same thing that Paul does in 1 Corinthians 5. If they still don't listen and they will not submit to what Scripture says, then you have to treat them as if they're not a Christian because they're not submitting to the Lordship of Christ. They're claiming to be something that they're not living. 
Again, the issue is not wipe your hands of them, wash away, and go, you have it. That's not the point. The point is they need to see the severity of what's happening in their hearts so that they will repent and come back to faith in Christ. That's always the goal. That's always the goal in Scripture. That's Paul's goal, he says in 1 Corinthians 5. Even as harsh as it sounds, it says, so that he may be taught not to sin, so that he would know what is right and true. You know, Rick Warren writes this, and you've probably seen this quote attributed to many other people, but Rick Warren's the one who wrote it, at least as far as we can tell first. He says this, Our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. The second is that to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. That's huge for us. Like, that is huge for us to, to realize is, We do not have to compromise convictions to be compassionate, but sometimes we think if we're compassionate, we're compromising our convictions, but that goes against what Scripture says. So let's take it out of the theoretical and move into the very personal. Now, I'm going to use two examples that kind of came in the last number of weeks, one with this question and one that kind of popped out uh, afterwards, and then I'll give you a few other examples as well. But this is where it becomes personal because when it's theoretical, it's okay, we can, we can make sense of this. But all of a sudden when it becomes in your family, it gets a lot more difficult. So your son comes home from college and he's decided that he identifies in the, LGT, uh, sorry, the LGBTQ community. Will you rest on what scripture says and, and you say, I don't think that's right in your mind. Now you wrestle with, now how do I love and protect and care for the son that God has given me and entrusted to me to do that? But how do I also not compromise on convictions? Well, the first question you have to ask, do they claim to be a follower of Jesus? Because if they don't, well, you're barking down the wrong tree. You don't deal with someone's sin. You deal with someone's heart. Let me say that a different way is when you go, I once saw an evangelist say, let me teach you how to witness to, and then he would give an example of this type of person. And then he'd go through his little pattern of evangelism. And then he'd say, let me teach you how to witness to this person, this person, and it was always exactly the same. Because he didn't deal with the person's specific sin in their life because the specific sin is not the problem, it's the heart. And so we show them that God loves them desperately. So if your son is not a Christian and he's come home and he said, this is how I'm going to live, well, you still love them unconditionally because God has entrusted them to you to be loved and to care for and to nurture. If they, aren't, if they say they're not in a walking relationship with the Lord, you ignore that specific sin. I shouldn't say ignore it, but you don't put the focus there. You pray for their spirit. You pray for their heart that they would come to repentance and they would come to Jesus, not because of how they're living, but because they need Jesus. That should be priority. And so if your son or your daughter come home from college and they're all of a sudden living in a way that you can't handle and that is more important than the fact that they're not in a walking relationship with the Lord, that's that's huge. That reveals a lot in our heart. So we need to pray for our son's for our daughters, for those that we love. If he is a Christian, then we remind, okay, you are loved, you were created in the image of God, and nothing you do or say will make me love you any less. But I think God has a different way for you, a different purpose. And you challenge them with what Scripture says, but you do it 
lovingly because condemning never works. Especially when they're in your own family. You need to love and you need to hold truth high. You have a daughter who has come home. Um, she's grown up, you know, living her own life, and she comes home and she says, Oh, I have moved in with my boyfriend. And we go, Oh. What what about what about like marriage? Well, we don't think marriage is really necessary, and, and that conversation ensues, and I'm sure many of you have had that conversation. Well, the principles all still are the same. Do they claim to follow after Jesus? That then determines how we're going to deal with that situation. But again, at the very end of the day, you still have to love and care for and show that you want relationship with your child because you love them. But you also then can go to Scripture if they're willing to hear it and show them and remind them. But if they're not, then you just you step back from that and you pray, God, would you just grab a hold of them? Would you reveal to their hearts their need for you? What about uh, things like this? Here's, here's one that maybe is a little more messy for some of you and, and maybe some of us have no idea about this. But you have a business partner uh, in, in your business. Is that redundant? You have a business partner in your business, yes. And, uh, you know, you've been working together for years and, and you find out that that person has been cheating on their taxes like crazy and then on Sundays are worshiping next to you and serving on the board with you. What do you do? Same thing. You still love them and you care for them because they're part of your spiritual family. But you know that they claim to be living for the Lord. And so then you say, is this right? Is this good? Is this true? I, I read a book for seminary just recently where this exact situation happened. Um, and this was uh, an elder in the church, and he was called out on this, and he completely repented of everything, and this is down in the States, so he had to deal with some, some ramifications of this, and he just pled guilty to everything. And he said, I could try and fight this, and I could try and walk my way around it, but that would misrepresent the name of Jesus. So he just pled guilty to everything. There were a lot of consequences for a lot of years. And yet that person was in a walking relationship with Jesus because they went, I know what I did was wrong and I confess it and I submit to the Lordship of Christ. So, so important. There's so many other examples that we could do, but for the sake of time here, we're not going to go into those. Condemning and condoning on either extremes don't work. One, it either values the relationship you have with the person above the relationship you have with God. Or if you condemn, it it makes you think that you're having a right relationship with God when actually you're not because you're called to love that person. And so we need to balance those things accordingly. Are they easy? Absolutely not. Is there a simple way to do it? No. Relationships are all, always messy. It's never simple. There are moments in our relationships that are great and that are wonderful, and there are moments that are difficult. Ernie said it before, is if you're sitting here as, as in a marriage relationship and you're like, man, we're really struggling in this area, but you're too afraid, or maybe you think other people haven't dealt with that, I promise you we all have. Because we all have hearts that are not right. And so any relationship that we have, we have to balance. I will love unconditionally the way that Jesus has loved me, but I will also not compromise in the convictions of what Scripture teaches. How do you do that in every situation? I don't have the answer for that. 
But I hope that as we've looked at these principles, it's given you a little bit of thought in your own mind of going, here's how I need to deal with this situation that's before me. Now again, more often than not, these situations don't resolve after one, two, three conversations. Sometimes these things happen for a long time. And it's a season of life that is very difficult. And where you as a parent are on your knees pleading with God that God would get a hold of their hearts. Sometimes those answers come fast. Sometimes they don't. But we trust God to do what is right. And we trust that as we are faithful to love and to care for and to hold truth high, that God loves them far more than we will. And so he will be at work in their hearts and in their minds. That's where we rest, knowing that God is in control. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. God, would you help us to not be people that cast judgment on others so that we can elevate ourselves and think that somehow we're something? Would we understand that every single person in this world has a broken heart and that we are in desperate need of you? God, when we come face-to-face with a brother or a sister in the Lord who is not living the way that Scripture says, would you give us courage to do what's right? Would you help us to evaluate our own hearts and in humility go to that person and show them what Scripture says? But would they also know how much we love and care for them in that moment? God, for those who do not know you who have not submitted to Christ, We pray that you would give us opportunities to share Christ with them. Would you put on our hearts a desire and a a deep longing to pray for that individual? God, we all have family and friends and peers that we love that are not walking with you right now. May our concern be for their salvation and not the uniqueness of the, the sin that maybe is in their lives. Help us to focus on their hearts. Help us to pray for them and to care for them. God, would you give us opportunities to share your truth with grace and love to all those that we meet. God, we thank you for how merciful and how gracious you are to us. And that no matter matter how bad something is that we have done, that we know that if we repent and we turn to you, that you forgive us. God, we thank you for your love this morning for us. May we love people in that same way. Go with us today. Amen. Thank you for coming again. Of course, there are snacks. As Ernie has mentioned, Yvette was hard at work. There's some little sausages and cheeses, and they disappear fast. So... So get there and and just visit together. Enjoy your time together. If you have any questions, you can feel free, of course, to connect with us. Have a wonderful week.